book of Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Looking at verses 1 through 6 of Romans chapter 1, the Bible says, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead, by whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name among whom are ye also the called of Jesus Christ. I would ask you tonight that you would pray for me, that I would be anointed and pray for you, that, that your ears would be anointed, that we could all hear what God is trying to say to our hearts tonight because I don't believe that he's done. I still believe that there's something that he wants to accomplish through his word. Let's pray, God. I'm so thankful, Lord, for a Pentecostal church that still believes that your spirit still moves that your spirit still works, God. And Lord, I'm thankful for a church, God, that believes in the power of your word, Lord. And I pray, God, tonight, Lord, that you would let your word speak to us, God, that you would open our hearts and our minds, God, that you would put us on that operating room table, Lord. And God, that you would operate on our minds, Lord God. Make us holy as you are holy. God, work in our hearts tonight, Lord, and it's in your name we pray. Amen, amen. You may be seated. The letter to the Roman church has been called a light and a way to the whole of Scripture. The book of Romans, it's been said, will either bring revival to the hungry heart or it will instill rage into the carnal heart. One of the writers in the early church period committed to reading through Romans twice every week of his life. William Tyndale said about Romans that I think it is important that every man not only know this book by memory, but also exercise himself in it as the daily bread of the soul. No man can read it too often or study it too much. The more it is chewed, the more precious it becomes. John Bunyan was inspired to write his classic Pilgrim's Progress after reading Romans 7. Preaching Romans will reintroduce us to the God who is totally committed to the task of rescuing us from the consequences of our sin. We see the gospel clearly put into action in the book of Acts, but we see it beautifully articulated in the epistle to the Roman church. You see, we see all of the death and the burial and the resurrection of the gospel in the book of Romans. Romans 2 and 4 says that the goodness of God leads us to repentance. Romans chapter 6, 3 through 8 says you must be baptized into Christ to be filled with the newness of life. Romans 15 and 13 says that we who have been filled with the Holy Ghost are full of hope. And we've been accused of holding a doctrine of salvation that's only present in the book of Acts, but that couldn't be further from the truth. The new birth that was experienced on the day of Pentecost was shown to us in the form of types and shadows from the very beginning back in that tabernacle. 
And since we're going to be doing small groups and Bible studies, I'm just going to go ahead and, 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 and do an introduction here to one of those first lessons in the book of Exodus. We see in Exodus 27, that brazen altar, that that was where the offering was sacrificed. This shows us the death of Jesus Christ. Exodus 30 shows us the brazen labor, which was a wash station for the priest before they offered that sacrifice. That shows us baptism in Jesus' name. And Exodus 28 shows us the holy of holies where the priest would enter in into the presence of the almighty holy God. And this shows us the infilling of the Holy Ghost inside of us. From the very beginning of God's interaction with Israel, we see that there were preparations that were being made for the day of Pentecost. It was God's great plan. It was God's great gospel. In the passage that we read tonight, it tells us that Paul was separated unto the gospel of God, which he had a promised afore by his prophets. So the gospel message is not just found in Acts. It's not just found in Romans. It's not just found in the types and the shadows of the tabernacle. It's also revealed to us by the prophets. Joel in Joel 2, 28 and 29 says, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. And also upon the servants and upon the handmaids in those days I will pour out my spirit. And it's notable to the fact that Peter, on the day of Pentecost, quoted that very passage as he spoke to those men and women in Jerusalem. There's no debate that whenever Joel was writing those words, that God was giving him a vision of what Pentecost was one day going to be like. As he put his pen to the page in his mind, God was showing him what it was going to be like when his spirit was going to be poured out on all flesh. But Joel wasn't the only prophet who spoke of Pentecost. You see in Isaiah, he said, with stammering lips, I will speak to my people. Jeremiah said, I will make a new covenant with my people. Ezekiel says, I will put a new spirit in you. I will pour out my spirit on Israel and I will cleanse you with water and I will put my spirit within you. And Zechariah said that my kingdom, God's kingdom, will be united under one name. And we know what that one name is. And these are just the ones that reference Pentecost. There are multitudes of other the prophecies that, that talk about Jesus being the Messiah. We could talk about those for the rest of, of the evening. But, but Jesus, even he used the prophecies on the Emmaus Road to show those travelers who he was and how the Old Testament spoke to that he was the Messiah. This precious gospel, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is why Paul was set apart. It was the great treasure that was placed into Paul's earthly vessel. It was millennia in the making. It had been cast in types and shadows in the tabernacle. It had been prophesied by the prophets, but now it is here. Now God's spirit is ready and working. As we have already seen tonight, the great move of the Holy Ghost, that all started on Pentecost, and it's continuing even unto this very day. Thank you, God. And the fact that we share in the same gospel 
that Paul experienced in Acts 9 on that Damascus road, that should bring us great joy. That should bring us great hope to know that the same thing that Paul was talking about, I have that exact same experience in my life. We know that he repented. We know that he was baptized in Jesus' name. We know that he received the Holy Ghost with the evidence of speaking in tongues. And he said of the gospel in Galatians 1, he said, if a man or an angel comes and tries to preach any other gospel, let him be accursed. There's no other gospel. There's nothing else that God has intended for us. It's the new birth message. That's what God has given us. So those of you who have followed the mandates of Acts 2.38 are now partakers in the promise of Acts 2.39. That promise, it's to you. It's to your children. It's to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. That is our promise. That is what we hold on to, that our sins have been washed away, that we've turned away from them, and that God has filled us with the spirit of him. And so now we stand innocent before our judge. Turn over to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, a beautiful, beautiful passage of Scripture. Let's just quickly look at it. The penalty for our sin has now been paid. Verse 1 says that we've been justified by faith and we are now at peace with God. Verse 2 says that we have access to God's grace and we can rejoice in the hope of God's glory. Verses 3 through 5 says we know that he is working out our sanctification. He is making us holy as he is holy. 6 through 8 says that he didn't die for us whenever we got everything together. Whenever everything was just right, that, 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 that God said, okay, now I'll die for him. No, it says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. His love isn't temporary. His love isn't fleeting. His love is not conditional. His love took him to the cross while we were still enemies with God Look at that in verses 10 through 11. While we were still enemies to God, Christ died for us. We've been justified by his blood and we are now safe from the wrath and the judgment of God. This is a powerful gospel. And whenever we are filled with the Holy Ghost, we are filled with power. Paul declares that the gospel in Romans 1 is the power of God unto salvation. Luke says in Acts 1 and 8 that whenever you're filled with the Holy Ghost, you're filled with the power to be a witness for him. He's placed his treasure in our weak earthly vessel. Our lives are nothing apart from the power of the gospel. If Jesus had never made that walk to Golgotha, if he had never died on that cross, we would be responsible for the burden of our sin. And let me tell you tonight, it's a debt that we could never, ever, ever in a million years repay. So we come to church in our Sunday best and, and we have our hair done just right and we, we, we somehow fall into this trap of thinking, well, well, well maybe I deserved God's death. Maybe I just, maybe I deserve, I'm a good person. I've never killed anybody. Maybe I deserve God's, God's grace. But, but Paul never fall, fell into that trap. He was always aware of what he was and who he was before he encountered Jesus Christ. He called himself the chief of sinners, the man who wrote the majority of the New Testament, the man who spread the gospel to the known world at that time, this man called himself the chief of sinners. 
and falling into this delusion that, that we're good enough, that, that, that we deserve God to die for us, it's going to lead us, it's going to lead us down to a pit of hell. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 2 and see what Paul had to say of whether or not he deserved death or whether or not he deserved the, the riches that, that Jesus had for us. Look at what he says in Ephesians 2. We were dead in trespasses and sin, verse 1. We walked according to the course of this world in verse 2. Verse 3 says that we carried out the lust of our flesh and we were children of wrath. Does that sound like someone who deserves to have God to die for them? No, it does not. But then we see that phrase, but God. But God, who was rich in mercy with his love that he loved us with, that even whenever we were dead in sins, he quickened us together with Christ, and it's by grace that you are saved. That's what Paul had in mind whenever he thought about the gospel. Worship was never difficult for him. Even whenever he was in that Roman jail cell, it was not difficult for him to find a reason to magnify God. The external circumstances never changed how he felt internally about God. This was the same power that changed Saul to Paul and, and that sustained him through the darkest days of his Christian walk. And that same power is available here for you tonight. That same spirit of repentance that overcame Paul on the Damascus road, that same baptism that he experienced at Ananias' house, that same spirit of baptism and water baptism that he had, there is no other gospel. But this power, it's only available to us through two actions. First, we have to submit to the mandate of the Word of God. Whenever we submit ourselves to what God said, whenever we submit ourselves to the new birth, to, to the death and the burial and the resurrection, then God begins to see that, that we're serious about what we're wanting to do with our lives. And next, we must consecrate. We must set our lives apart for what God is wanting us to do. Whenever God comes back for his church, he's looking for a holy church. So we've got to submit ourselves and we've got to consecrate ourselves to God. That power, that gospel, that change in Paul's life is what drove him to evangelize his modern world. It wasn't enough that he got the good news for himself. He had to tell everyone else about it. That was his mandate from God. If you look back to the text that we read, Romans 1 and 5 says, By whom we have received grace and apostleship. Why? For the obedience to the faith among all nations. God called Paul. God called us. Why? So that we could call the nations to be obedient to what God has called us to do. God saved Paul. He set him apart. He put him on that path. And so then Paul would say things like this in 1 Corinthians 2 and 2. I'm determined to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. 1 Corinthians 9, 16. For though I preach the gospel, I have nothing to glory of. For necessity is laid upon me. Yet woe is unto me if I don't preach the gospel. Do you see what he's saying there? It's a necessity for me. I have no other choice. I have no other option. God has done too much in my life. Necessity is laid upon me. I've got to preach the gospel. 
and Acts 20 and 24, but none of these things move me. Neither count I my life dear unto myself so that I may finish my course with joy and the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. None of these things move me. Nothing that comes against me moves me. Why? I'm standing on a foundation. I've got a purpose that God has called me to do. Oh, Jesus. These are the words of a man on a mission. A man who knows what his calling is and will do anything he can to fulfill it. His calling kept him through difficult times, beatings, shipwreck. Those were no consequence to him. Why? None of these things move me. I don't count my life dear to myself. My life has been bought with a price, a price of blood, and now I've got to live my life for God. He knew that God was going to use his life to the fullest. He knew that whenever he got to the end of his race, that there was going to be nothing left, no regrets, nothing else that he could possibly do. Because he says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4 and 6, I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. Whenever you look at the drink offering in the Old Testament, with all the other sacrifices, there was was something that was left behind. It might have just been ashes. It might just be the altar that's there and and the fire has burned, but this wasn't the case with the drink offering. Once that drink offering was poured out, there was nothing that was left. There was nothing to recover. There was no remnant that was going to be there to remind you of what that sacrifice even was. If you were to go back to the location of where that drink offering had been poured out the day before, you would never even know that that, that something had been done there because that drink offering would have been poured out and totally evaporated and totally gone. And that's what Paul said. I don't want to be remembered. I want to be poured out for God. I don't want anybody to look at me and say, Paul, look at what you did. Look at all those books that you wrote. He said, no, I just want to be poured out. I don't want there to be anything left in my life, God. I want you to Use me up. He wanted all the glory to be given to God. That mindset, it didn't come from the natural man. It didn't come from the mind of flesh. The mind of man is is always seeking personal gain, personal recognition. But Paul, his life, it had been so changed by the Holy Ghost that now he he was saying things like necessity is laid upon me. My life counts as nothing. I'll be poured out as a drink offering. He was saying, I don't care about myself. I care about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Oh, Jesus. There's two reasons, major reasons that we see in Scripture that God saves us. One reason is found in Ephesians 1 and 4, and that's that God would make us holy, that he could present to himself a holy bride. The other reason that we find is Paul talking in Acts chapter 26, verses 16 through 18. Look at what he says about what happened to him on the road to Damascus. He said that the Lord said to him, but rise and stand upon thy feet for I appeared unto thee for this purpose to make you a minister and a witness both of these things which thou hast seen and of those things in which I will appear unto thee, delivering thee from the people and from the Gentiles unto whom now I send thee. Why? To open their eyes 
to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto the power of God that they can receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. God saved us to make us holy and to make us witnesses. Not to be the, the bump on the log. Not to sit on the, you know... That back in the back and just and just let things just go by and, and, and just say, good, I'm in. Wait till I die. I get to go up to heaven. That's not why God saved us. God saved us to make us holy and to make us witnesses. So that as Jude said in Jude 23, that, that he was pulling them from the fire, pulling people from the fire. You were set apart. Thank God for that. But don't forget why he set you apart. God, let us get a glimpse of what hell and the never-ending nature of eternity looks like so that whenever we go to our jobs and whenever we are at play and whenever we're at home and whenever we are together with people who are not saved, that that is what is at the forefront of our mind. It's a necessity that's been laid upon me. I must preach the gospel. I pray tonight that you would have an eternal focus so that the small offenses of this life, they don't mean anything. They're just little bumps in the road because your mind is focused on the eternal goal. Our purpose is not just to accumulate stuff. Matthew 6, 19 through 21 says, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon the earth where moth and rust doth corrupt and where thieves break through and steal, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt and where thieves do not break through or steal. For where your treasure is, that's where your heart is going to be. God saved us not for easy living, not for the American dream. He saved us to make us holy and to make us witnesses. I pray that, that, that tonight we will become so sick of the fleeting nature of the things of this world and we would say, God, let me be called to the eternal things. God, I give you to myself to the kingdom. God, I give yourself to revival in the city of Dothan. God, I give you myself for proclamation of the gospel. And so we see that there's great power that God has placed in our lives. It's the power of the gospel. There's a great purpose that God has for us. It's the proclamation of the gospel. But when we look to the life of Paul, we find that there's another reality of our spiritual walk that Paul knew, and that is that there was going to be peril. There's going to be power, there's going to be purpose, but there's also going to be some peril. Whenever Paul turned his life from persecuting Christians to becoming the gospel's chief proponent on the Damascus Road, he put his life in direct opposition to Satan. Now, instead of being a worker of iniquity, he became a slave to Jesus Christ. That meant that the forces of hell now knew him, now knew who he was, and now focused their target on him. Paul spoke more about spiritual warfare than perhaps any other writer in the Bible. He fought the enemy both on a physical and a spiritual level. There were numerous times that he was beaten, numerous times that he was stoned. He was even killed and raised back to life. This was nothing more than Satan trying to kill God's chosen man. 
In that familiar passage of 2 Corinthians 2 and 7, he says, And lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. There were two places that Satan tried to attack Paul. One was in his physical body. He tells us, in 2 Corinthians 11, he tells us, I was beaten by the Jews. There, there was times where he was stoned, where he was shipwrecked, where he was in danger of thieves and false prophets. He says that he was weary. He says that he was in pain. He says that he was hungry. He says that he was cold and naked. His physical body was under attack from the forces of hell. The second place of attack was in Paul's mind where that messenger of Satan was sent to discourage him. And both of those points of attack showed Paul that his strength was not sufficient of his own self. He wasn't good enough to fight that battle. He wasn't strong enough to be able to stand against those attacks. What did God say? I'm not taking that thorn away. I've got to show you, Paul, that my grace is sufficient to sustain you. In Paul's epistle, we see the word fight six times, the word war 17 times, the word battle one time, the word soldier two times. Paul was not disillusioned to the fact that he was now in a spiritual battle. And you here tonight are in a spiritual battle. We are soldiers of the gospel just as Paul was a soldier of the gospel. He was fighting against principalities, against powers, against rulers of darkness of the world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. You can read the end of Romans 1 and see what sin does to people. And that was what Paul was having to combat in his day. He didn't suffer from spiritual complacency. Why? Because he was under attack. He was under attack. And so he was always conscious of the fact that he was a sinner saved by grace. But he was also always conscious of the fact that he was in a battle. His mind was so in tune to spiritual things that he could see the forces of darkness and the forces of light warring against one another. And I think that, that in our own Christian walk, that, that maybe if God would just for a moment let us see the forces that we are fighting against, how it would so radically impact our lives. If we could see the demons that were coming against our family, if we could see the demons that were trying to come against this church, this local body, it would change the way that you live for God. It would change it. We've been talking a lot lately about prayer and, and fasting and, and studying the word and, and anointing people with oil and, and small groups. We're, we're making these steps in spiritual warfare. And so now what have we been seeing? We've been seeing Satan steadily ramping up his attack against the church. As we've been preparing ourselves to unleash the gospel on this city, Satan has now said, you know what, I'm not just going to stand idly by. May I remind you that Paul never once faced an attack of Satan until after the Damascus Road. 
He never was seen as a threat to Satan until after his conversion. But it was at that point where Paul said, necessity's laid upon me. I've got to preach the gospel. I've got no other choice. I've got no other option that Satan's ears begin to perk up and say, you know what? I've got a problem here. I'm going to have to do whatever I can to get this man to shut his mouth. And that's exactly what he did. And that is exactly what Satan is going to do to us. Give yourself to prayer. Give yourself to fasting. Give yourself to personal Bible study. Whenever we set ourselves apart from this world, Satan and his demons take note. Remember what, he, what, what, what the demons said to the sons of Sceva in Acts 19 and 15, and the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, Paul I know, but who are you? Have you spent time in the prayer closet? Have you spent time pushing the plate back saying, you know what, I, I've got to draw closer to God. Does the devil know who you are? Does he know that, that you're proclaiming the gospel? Are you a threat to the enemy? Whenever you give yourself to personal consecration, Satan becomes aware of who you are and what you're doing. It has nothing to do with your own merits. You don't fast a certain period of time and, and you get a certain level closer to God. No, you fast to draw closer to God and God does with your sacrifice what he will. It has everything to do with the power of the Holy Ghost inside of you. You have been filled with the power of the gospel. The power of God unto salvation. And so perils... Perils of the body, perils of the mind, of the things that the enemy comes against us, those should not dissuade us just as they did not dissuade Paul. Look at what he says in Philippians 3, 8 through 10. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and I do count them as dung. Why? That I may win Christ. That I may be found in him. That, that, that his righteousness would become my righteousness. Verse 10, that I may know him. That I may know God. That I would know what his voice sounds like. It didn't matter to Paul if he lost everything. It didn't matter to him. He just wanted to know Jesus Christ. Satan's attacks, they have little effect on a man who thinks like this. There was such a focus. There was, there was things that, that, that were in his mind. He had those blinders up. Nothing that come in from the side would ever persuade him to stop because his focus was on Jesus and Jesus alone. Those, even the attacks of the enemy, they just worked in Paul's favor because they just showed him that, that apart from God, I can do nothing. Apart from God, God and his grace, I can do nothing. So you've got to anticipate that there are going to be attacks against us. And we saw them from, from the time that we started leveling out and getting, this, getting dirt ready to go for this building. We saw them. Why? Because we're preparing for the harvest. Because we're making steps to say, you know what, God, I'm going to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ in this city. So Satan said, you know what, I'm not just going to sit back. I'm going to do whatever I can. But you know what we did? We just kept putting one foot in front of the other, one foot in front of the other. I've got my eye on that mark of what Jesus is calling me to do. 
And we're seeing even that now. We're seeing a heightened level of spiritual attack among this body of believers. Why? Because we're giving ourselves to the anointing of oil and we're giving ourselves to fasting and we're giving ourselves to these small group Bible studies for evangelism. So don't think for a moment that Satan is not going to come against us. Satan is taking notice of the work that God is wanting to accomplish in this city and he's taking note. He's taking note. I want Sister Alyssa to come up here. We had we had a um, interesting, um, eventful evening slash morning, whatever three a.m. you would call this morning. Satan's taking note of what's going on in this city. <clears throat> So, um, for those that don't know, Justin and I were privileged enough to go to, um, because of the times, uh, I think we left when Wednesday, Tuesday, and we stayed till Thursday night and traveled back Friday. Well, one of the themes at Because of the Times was um, the anointing that God places on your life and that we need to speak out with boldness, not only for ourselves, but boldness in the church to go out and witness to the others. And he also talked about unity, being one with God. And so, Justin and I... You know, going to conferences, you claim things. And I started praying when we went to this conference, God, give us boldness. But not only me, give us boldness in our small groups. God, give us boldness in our Sunday school classes. Give, our, give us boldness in the churches. And um, when we came back, we were traveling back. And it's amazing how whenever you reach something in your spiritual life, as soon as you reach that point, it's like the devil just tries to come against you. It happens every time. And so I prayed for all this, and we had such a, uh, you know, breakthrough in, in our marriage spiritually. And we get in the car, and we're heading back Friday, and we left at 9. By 12 o'clock, as most marriages, y'all probably don't have it, but we started arguing. 12 o'clock, the next day after I done prayed for boldness, we had an argument in the car. And this literally, this wasn't a small argument. It lasted. This is an eight-hour drive, y'all, from Louisiana, from 12 o'clock till we got home at 5. And you could tell we walked into Sister Teresa's and went to pick up the kids, and I don't want to look at him. He don't want to look at me. Sister Teresa was going to have to counsel us there right in her house. So we get into our house. We get the kids situated. We fed them. We put them to bed. We went to bed around, what, 11? So all this is going on. We're upset with each other after, because of the times, great move of God, and we start feeling sick even. I started feeling it in my body. I'm like, Lord, I'm coming down with the flu. I'm starting to get body aches. Justin's feeling the same thing. Maybe it was something we ate. We go to bed. Didn't do anything different. Around, well, not around. I went to sleep. And I had, I guess, a vision from God. Never happened to me before. I only thought this happened to people like G.A. Mangan and Sister Tinny. But I had, I guess, a nightmare or vision where it was pitch black all around me, and it was as vivid as if I was living it out. It's pitch black. And Justin was standing there with me, and I could feel something. I don't know what it was, but this spirit just kept getting stronger and stronger. I couldn't see anything, and I see Justin all of a sudden. I said, Justin, grab the kids. Justin, grab the kids. Something's coming. Something's coming. I don't know what it is, but we've got to save the kids. And he grabs the kids, and he's holding them. And I look at him, and I see out of the darkness this black figure come out. And he had white, flaming white eyes, as white as can be. And he looks at me, and he says, I want your family. 
I want your family. I want your family. He says it three times. And I couldn't breathe. It's like a vice grip is wrapped around me like you see a, a, a snake squealing, squeezing a snake or a snake squeezing a rat. And it was, it was just all around me. And I wake up and I can't breathe. I'm trying to catch my breath. I look over and Justin's asleep. And something inside of me says, Alyssa, get up. Alyssa, get up. You need to pray. You need to wake Justin up. You need to start praying. There's something coming. There's something coming. So I look over and doubt floods my mind. It's just a nightmare. I'll just go back to sleep. I won't do nothing about it. Justin's sleeping. I don't want to wake up the kids. Well, then I was like, no, I'm going to get up. I'm going to pray. But I won't bother Justin. So I get up and I put my contacts in. I turn my light on my phone and I look over at Justin. And right whenever I look over at him, he flips open and he says, what's wrong? And I said, I Justin, I don't know what it is. Something's in this house. Something's about to happen. You've got to get up. This has never happened to us before. He's trying to get up. I run in there to his, his office, and I grab the first Bible I see, and I start looking for oil because he normally has oil in his office. I can't find it, so I, I give up on that, and I run in there into our pantry, and we've got a thing of olive oil. I said, well, this is going to have to do. I pour it all in my hand in the sink. I lay the Bible down. Justin comes in there. He says, you take the front. I'll take the back. He he starts praying in authority. I start praying in authority. I literally take that oil and I start smearing it all on my wall. I smear it on my stove. I smear it on my windows. I start to the kids' room. I open up the door. I don't care if I wake him up. I go and I lay my hands on Asher. I start pleading the blood. I close this door. I go into Addie. I lay my hands on her. I don't care if I wake her up. I start pleading the blood. I leave and something inside of me, pray for your family. Pray for your family so I go to the front I start praying for Justin and then I leave him and I said I gotta pray for my family I start praying for brother Philip I start praying for my pastor grandpa I start praying for Mike and Jill in Romania I start praying for Kay and Lila and Carson I start praying for my family my dad and my mom and Mariana my siblings and then I stop and I'm like well I must be done and then something inside of me says no you've got your church family you've got to pray for so sister Renee I start praying for you and brother John Brother Donnie, I pray for you. I start praying for Chad and Brindy. And something comes over me this whole time. I feel this vice grip on me that's getting tighter and tighter. I go to my back door. I lay hands on my back door, and I'm praying for the church family. And at the end, I remember it clear as day. I said this prayer. I said, by the power of God Almighty, I plead the blood over my family. I plead the blood over my house. And with authority of the power of God and the Holy Ghost, I rebuke every spirit. I rebuke every demon that come against here and I loose you in the mighty name of Jesus. Satan, go back to where you came from. And in the name of Jesus, there was a release that came from my hand to that door and I felt a break in the spirit. And I know, I know that was a devil in my house. And I said, not today, devil. This is my house. This is my family. And I plead the blood in Jesus' name.